Welcome everyone to another Equals. This is Nabil. Welcome everyone. This is Max. And we're talking about the very important issue of healthcare today. Can you believe, Max, we haven't had an episode yet about healthcare? No, I was quite surprised, actually. I really thought we'd done one already. I mean, we've covered, what, everything from billionaire wealth, workers' rights, fascism, even buses, right? Maybe maybe healthcare's not fashionable enough? We can make our step towards making healthcare fashionable again today. And, and Max, I mean, I can say this <laughs> very politely, but you're never one really to care about being fashionable, are you? Ish, woof, that is harsh. It could be a compliment. It could be a compliment in there, you know? Rich coming from a guy who thinks a Harry Potter t-shirt is the height of fashion. I'll have you know I've worked for very, very famous companies who are known for being very fashionable, you know? Uh, let's be clear here, L'Oreal, briefly, and The Gap. I yeah, mean, absolutely. We're talking catwalk here, aren't we? <laughs> Listen, mate, I'm trying to compliment you here. You know, some people are, how do we say, made for radio? I think years from now, Nabil, you're going to be wearing a tank top and you're going to look back and say, wow, Max was there first. And I think what the problem is, is, is you're mistaking the van. You know how people are scared of something they don't understand and, and the vanguard of fashion? You know, of course you don't understand it, but rest assured, you will be there soon. Sure, sure. <laughs> Listen, I can't even segue from that to healthcare, but... Let's get talking about healthcare, Max. And it's we've got an amazing couple of interviews ahead of us. I remember, what, 18, 19 months ago, Max, right at the start of this pandemic, I remember our conversations with, with colleagues at Oxfam would be talking about how, you know, universal healthcare would surely be the legacy of this pandemic, this insane idea that you'd have to worry about being able to afford to see a doctor or get a hospital bed would surely be put out of place by this pandemic. Yes, I still believe that. I think, you know, a crisis is when change happens. And I think that it's going to be very hard for governments not to invest in healthcare in the next 10 years. But the way they do that will define whether they're successful or not. And I think that's the key theme of this podcast, because we're going to look at two angles on healthcare. We're going to look at how do you finance it? How do you pay for it? And we're going to look at how it's delivered and two interviewees, amazing people on both those topics. Absolutely. And the first interview is really getting to how we pay for healthcare and just this idea of asking people to pay out of their pocket for healthcare and what that does for populations. And we'll be talking to Rob Yates about that. A real honour to have him on the podcast. He's a director of the Global Health Programme at Chatham House. He's previously been at the World Health Organisation and he really works closely with and pushes governments around the world on this issue. Yes, and then we're going to talk to uh, Rebecca Riddell. Um, she's the co-director of the Human Rights and Privatisation Project at New York University. She's been working in Kenya with a human rights organisation, Haki Jamhi, uh, on a paper around the privatisation of health in Kenya, something we know very well, and the impact of relying on the private sector rather than the public sector. Absolutely. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Welcome, Rob, to Equals. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Delighted to be with you. Uh, Rob, a very warm welcome to Equals. And Max, hey, we're continuing our very rich form of having people from the north of England on the show, you know? Yeah, that's great. We're levelling up one guest at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Other side of the Pennines, Rob, it might be, but, you know, we're still all part of the north, aren't we? Absolutely. Yes, yes. We're all, all brothers from the north. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. Northern powerhouse. Rob, let's let's get straight into it, talking about the thing you really know about, user fees. And 
right, you've been fighting against user fees in health for, for decades, right? And you know, just to start off with, what you know, why do you feel so strongly that asking people to pay for their health is such a bad thing? I think the important point to make is is that it's really bad thing for asking people to pay for services when they need them. This idea that you, you buy health services over the counter is a terrible way to finance a health system. But, but at the end of the day, we do need to pay for health services. It's just much better done by the state governing that, because then you can raise money progressively with rich people paying more, and also in a much more timely way that, that you prepay for the health services. In that way, you reduce, or in fact, you eliminate the financial barriers just at the point that people need the care. What is the real impact of user fees that, that you've seen on your travels and through your research? Because I keep an eye on your Twitter feed, and there's some scary things that you put up on there. Yes, and, and it really is astonishing how user fees deter people from, from, from health services. And about 30 years ago, the ideology was that somehow this was a virtuous thing, you know, that people only value services when they pay for them. But that was absolute rubbish. And, and this was brought home to me when I was working in Uganda in, in 2000. Just before the presidential election, President Museveni scrapped all healthcare user fees. And we saw huge surges in demand for services, mostly from poor people who quite simply weren't coming before because they couldn't afford the services. So that was a, a real wake up call for, for me personally. But I think that, you know, the world has really realised now that that even the smallest healthcare user fees, A, they don't raise any money, but most significantly, they stop people from accessing health services. And particularly in a global pandemic, that's a terrible thing. So basically, we, we should get rid of charges at the point of delivery. I remember the first time we met, I think, was in Uganda in maybe 2003 or something. And recently living in Kenya, I've definitely seen the other side of that, you know, stories in the newspapers of people being almost imprisoned for not paying their bills. And I know you found some really horrific cases of that going on too. Yes, that, that has been a, a real terrible uh, consequence of healthcare user fees in a number of countries that without good sort of governance structures in place as well and hospitals basically being told to recoup debts any way they can, that they quite simply uh, detain people illegally, in effect, hold them hostage until their family pay their bills. And there are some countries that, you know, the, the hospitals have practically uh, become debtors' prisons. This was the, the case of Burundi in the, in the mid-2000s. But other countries, too, to this day, including Kenya, you're right, Max, Ghana, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Cameroon, large numbers of people, often women who have had cesarean sections and their babies, kept for months, often denied treatment, denied food, because they can't pay their user fees. And obviously, this is a gross violation of human rights and really should be stopped immediately. But it's a consequence of the charging of healthcare user fees. I remember my friend Mike in, in, in Kenya, his, his mother died. Sadly, she was in hospital for a couple of weeks and it took him like a month to get the body and they wouldn't release yes. the body in, until he paid the bill. Really horrific. We obviously completely agree with you and think that user fees are a terrible thing. But we do often hear from the other side of the fence, if you like, that in some ways, universal health coverage in, in a poor country, in a developing country, is not really affordable, it's not really realistic. So there has to be some way of rationing demand, if you like. There has to be some way of you know shrinking the services to fit the amount that can be afforded. When you hear that, what do you think? I think it is possible to have a universal coverage of, of a package of services that, that that country 
can afford. And and obviously, wealthier countries with, with a much higher GDP and big, higher tax take are going to be able to afford a much bigger spectrum of, of health services. And very much sort of following this sort of mantra that, that uh, you have a package that is available to, to everyone or it's available to no one, and we, which is basically the you know the basis of the the national health service here in the UK. But there's a long, long history of, of countries having done this, going back to the the 1950s in in China with the famous barefoot doctor system. Uh, Sri Lanka has had a universal, free, publicly financed health system since the 1950s. Bhutan, Cuba, more recently Costa Rica. But then you have seen these other transitions where countries have suddenly provided this universal package of services for everyone, primarily funding it out of general taxation. And I would argue that you could do that in practically every country in the world, no matter what your income level. For example, Rwanda has done very well in providing uh, a rudimentary universal health system to, to its population. There's a misconception that this is provided out of private health insurance, uh, which it isn't. That, that there is a national health insurance programme that is primarily tax financed with just a small membership fee for a small proportion of the population. But in effect, it is a universal tax finance health system, which is doing very well at protecting the population. So, you know, this can be done everywhere, but one obviously has to be realistic about what can be in the benefit package to cover the entire population. Rob, you bring, you bring up that question of insurance and it does feel like, you know, the World Bank, I mean, maybe they could be more active in encouraging countries to remove user fees that have them, but they're certainly not pushing them in many places any longer. But their substitute feels like it's more, you know, rolling out formal insurance schemes that we all have to kind of pay separate to our taxes. What do you think about them? Do you think that's a, a viable substitute? Uh, contributory health insurance, no. I mean, I, I think it's a very slow route and, and that, that if you're serious about covering the entire population, what the world has learned is that, that poor people don't pay health insurance contributions at sufficient scale. And of course, the, you know, the country that exhibits that the most is the United States, where 10% of the population are, are still uncovered. So if you're serious about universal population coverage, you basically need to tax finance the entire informal sector. And of course, in, in lots of low and uh, low middle income countries, that's the vast majority of the population. And all the successful examples of reaching full population coverage, particularly from Asia, and we, you know, we cite examples like Thailand and, and uh, Sri Lanka and Malaysia, have used tax financing to cover the informal sector. That's very interesting, Rob. I'm interested just to dig deeper to ask, as you go about championing universal healthcare around the world, where has the opposition come from? Well, I think, you know, it is important to take a historical, uh, historic perspective on, you know, what, what's happened. Because I think if you look at the advice that's been provided by the international community over the years, certainly over the last 50 years, one has to say on health financing, it's been absolutely lamentable. The whole user fee situation that we're describing here was really through policies imposed by the likes of the, the World Bank and IMF about 30, 40 years ago through structural adjustments. And that was clearly wrong because it deterred millions of people accessing health services and pushed even more millions in, in, into poverty. I think there was then an attempt to sort of try and, and move on and, and introduce things like community health insurance 
but that hasn't worked either I mean, because community health insurance is private voluntary insurance and we know that that doesn't work and just putting the word community in front of it doesn't suddenly make a, a bad thing good then i think there have been these attempts to to really encourage a, um, a contributory social insurance model you know that's that's far too slow now it's not to say that you can't take insurance contributions off the the formal sector and, and a number of western countries do that but the the bulk of the financing should be should be tax financed if you look at all that you know our, our track record collectively has been very very poor and i think the good news is that you're seeing political leaders in many developing countries recognizing that a lot of the advice they've been given has been rubbish and are really going for it and introducing domestically financed tax finance universal health reforms cheers rob you've made clear there the broad role of the international community and the international financial institutions that include the imf and the world bank but can we get you know more specific can you give us some examples like how has the bank responded when we've seen countries trying to implement progressive healthcare reforms and you know what are they up to now well it's been, it's been variable to 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 put it mildly and you know the, i think after the user fees fiasco we have seen a general improvement but i do think there is still a tendency for the ifis not to be bold enough um you know especially sort of facing these crises and i think a very good example is what happened in in thailand at the turn of the century where after the spectacular financial uh, crash um Taksin came to power, the prime minister sort of came to power very much with an agenda to help the rural poor, particularly with free health and education services. And he made this pledge to to launch a universal tax finance system. Now, the World Bank at the time said, you can't afford to do that. The, the, the economy is in such a state that that is unaffordable. And, and they publicly opposed that policy. Now, Prime Minister Taksin went ahead regardless and it was massively successful, hugely popular, and you know is, is generally seen as one of the world's great UHC systems uh, in, in the last 20, 30 years. And one very interesting thing, but I think indicating that the World Bank is, has perhaps learned from this, is that uh, Jim Kim, the then president of the World Bank, in his speech to the World Health Assembly in 2013, congratulated Thailand in in achieving universal health coverage and even um, said that that they had done that ignoring World Bank advice and congratulating uh, Thailand in having done that so I think you know that's a lesson for the for the situation we find ourselves in now you can see that there will be concerns about levels of public spending but it's very important that that we we encourage countries to really take this opportunity to grab the UHC agenda. And, you know, if that means sort of taking debt levels, you know, to, to, to higher levels than they've been before and um, and, and increasing, uh, you know, budget expenditure, then just look back to those examples like Thailand and say, well, it's a smart investment. So Thailand ignoring the advice of the bank and doing the right thing anyway in the pursuit of universal healthcare. Very interesting. What about Kenya, Rob? You know, we're talking a bit about Kenya in this episode. We've heard aspirations here about universal healthcare, but there does seem to be external resistance to that. I think Kenya is an interesting um, example as well, because um, if you look back to the mid 2000s, there was a, a, an attempt for you know Kenya to launch a universal um, 
health system, publicly financed. The then uh, Minister of Health was uh, Charity Ngilu, who spoke passionately about universal health coverage. And, and at a public meeting, um, you know, sort of recognised that the user fees situation was so bad in Kenya that she knew of an example of, of a, a mother desperately uh, trying to escape uh, a hospital. She'd been detained because she hadn't paid her bills and throwing a baby out of the window to be caught by relatives below so that she could shin down a drain pipe and escape. So she was very, very passionate about this and tried to, to launch a universal health system. My understanding was, was that there was a big dispute between the uh, Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Health as to whether this was affordable or not. But it was pressure from the IFIs that persuaded the finance, but especially the, the then president, that this was unaffordable and those those plans never came to fruition. But even in the recent reforms, that the um, the attempts to launch universal health coverage um, in in Kenya, my understanding was the inclination of the president was to go full throttle for a universal system immediately across the country. But then instead, the plan uh, actually when it came to fruition was about piloting it in, in four counties uh, instead of going for it big bang across the country. And again, I believe that the IFIs had a role in uh, discouraging uh, the, the president from, from going nationwide immediately and instead taking a more conservative approach with, with piloting. And um, I think, you know, the evidence from, from around the world in many respects is the most successful UHC reforms are the Big Bang reforms. A brilliant interview with Rob, with Rob so far, I should say. We're going to come back to Rob actually at the end of this podcast episode to talk about his vision looking forward. Now, he talked about conservative approaches there. Our next interview will deep dive on one of the most conservative ways to manage a health system. Yes, because now we're going to go to Rebecca and she's going to tell us uh, all about the, the really dangerous privatisation of healthcare in Kenya. Yeah, it's a great conversation. And, uh, I should say Rebecca was interviewed by myself and by Elizabeth Njambi, the brilliant producer behind Equals based here in Kenya. Let's get to it. Rebecca, welcome to Equals. It's great to have one of our actual listeners actually on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I'm not actually going to ask what episode you're up to and how many of our episodes you've listened to. Well, I can say season four is a real banger. Liz, that sounds pretty legit to me. It does. <laughs> <laughs> so great to have you on. Uh, wonderful meeting you when you guys were in Kenya. I'm a Kenyan, so I not only related, but I appreciated the fact that you chose to do a report on our country. And some of the stories that you guys were highlighting are things I have personally experienced with family members. In fact, just at the beginning of this year, there's someone we weren't able to take to hospital because to be too expensive just to have them admitted for very 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 simple checks they had covid and we just wanted to know what their oxygen levels were so for me this report hits home literally but i wonder rebecca why kenya so first i just want to say thank you so much for sharing that um your words mean a lot to me personally so i'm a human rights lawyer i don't work in kenya I work at New York University, where I co-direct a project with Bassam Kawaja that focuses on how 
privatizing essential services can impact human rights. And it grew out of our experience working with Philip Alston in his role as United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty. And very specifically, it grew out of the many times that we witnessed how the commercialization of basic goods could have a very disastrous impact on people's rights, whether it was housing in Spain, infrastructure in Laos, water in Nigeria, or what have you. As far as what brought us to Kenya, first and foremost, we had the privilege and the opportunity to work with a really wonderful partner organization, Hakijami. They're a Kenyan human rights organization that does really great work on the right to housing, education, and other economic and social rights. Second, it's also because Kenya, like many countries, has been the focus of a really concerted push to expand the role of the private sector in health. Especially over the past decade, the role of the private sector has rapidly grown as a result of policy choices. And we wanted to understand what that's meant for people, how it's affected access to quality care, how it's affected public coffers, how it's impacted particular groups like women or people with disabilities. So going there onto, onto the things you were looking for, can you give us a headlines? What is this report saying about healthcare and the privatization of healthcare in Kenya? What we found is that the private sector's role in healthcare is rapidly growing as a result of government policy, but that privatization is really failing to deliver on its promise of expanding access to affordable quality care. Instead, privatizing care has proven much more expensive for healthcare users in the government. The same services in the private sector can cost up to 12 times what they cost in the public sector. The private sector also relies really heavily on public funds, and so the Kenyan government sends at least tens of billions of Kenyan shillings every year to the private sector. We also found that privatizing care is leading to exclusion and pushing people into poverty and debt. So community members we spoke with reported being turned away from private facilities and stopping treatment for potentially deadly conditions because they couldn't afford to continue. Many also described enduring really immense hardship to pay for private care. So people we spoke with sold livestock and vehicles, they went into debt, they sacrificed educational opportunities to afford care. And we found there's somewhat of a misconception about the quality of health care provided by the private sector. Many associate private with high quality care. But the reality is much of the private sector, particularly in informal settlements, isn't offering good care. Instead, it's offering substandard, inadequate, unsafe, and even illegal care. And finally, privatizing care is also leading to the neglect of public health priorities, as private providers focus on high-return curative care like surgeries and are systematically less likely to offer a wide range of key health services like child health care, family planning, and immunizations. Private providers aren't interested in building systems. That's just not their goal. Profit is. But there are a lot of things we may want done as a society that simply aren't profitable. I want to go back to something you said. You said, one, that it's not delivered on its promises, but two, it's actually more expensive. Could you just explain a little further, how is it more expensive? You know, where is the money actually going? Okay, so let's just look at PPPs for a moment, public-private partnerships. The Kenyan government has taken on $90 million in loans from the World Bank to turbocharge its PPP program. So let's take just one example the Managed Equipment Services PPP, a seven-year public-private partnership to lease medical equipment, which was heavily promoted by the World Bank. The deal will cost Kenya an estimated 500 million US dollars, much of which is going to global health companies like General Electric and Philips. The deal is shrouded in secrecy, sharply criticized by public health authorities who say they could have bought equipment for less than they're paying to lease it. And there are widespread reports of equipment that was never delivered or was delivered to places that have no use for it. And it's not just in Kenya where PPPs have failed to deliver. They've been referred to as budgetary time bombs for good reason because they often involve super high and binding costs, are really hard to get out of, and provide poor value for money. 
And Rebecca, you met with the government, right? So you you pushed them on these issues. What did they say to this? Did you get a sense that this is uh, a kind of a very pro-privatization, neoliberal-minded government, or is there something else going on? We did have the opportunity to meet with representatives of the Ministry of Health and the National Hospital Insurance Fund, as well as to interview county-level health authorities. And the response is really mixed. I think there's a strong level of commitment to the private sector amongst a lot of people, and that's certainly not unique to Kenya. But there are also a number of officials who agreed essentially with our findings. They said, yes, we know the private healthcare sector has a lot of these problems, especially on the low end. We know that the social insurance coverage that we offer actually ends up benefiting the private health sector substantially. And I I think this is really, you know, it's an inflection point right now in Kenya as as the country decides how to move forward. So we're hopeful that these findings will be useful to the government officials with whom we spoke. Something that keeps coming up through this conversation, and I think even through the conversation that we had with your colleague Bassam, is that this this fairy tale of the private sector being more competitive, more effective, it, it really is a fairy tale, right? On one hand, they're not those things, but they're also the wasting it on the public dollar. That has to speak to a political undercurrent, and I'm I want to go there for a second. You know, who is pushing this agenda? So privatization of the healthcare sector in Kenya is not happening in a vacuum. Much of the pressure to privatize has come from external actors like the World Bank and donors like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and also, frankly, from wealthy countries who are quite explicit that they're promoting the private health sector in order to create markets for their own domestic companies. So these actors have done a litany of things. They've promoted policy reforms meant to encourage the private sector. They've conditioned loans on private sector deals, and they've invested directly in private hospitals and clinics in Kenya. And of course, many of them also promoted cuts to the public health care system that in turn drive people to the private sector. So in many ways, they're really responsible for the growing role of the private sector in health, yet they're remarkably willing to ignore its problems or to patronizingly blame those problems on the Kenyan government instead of really reckoning with the inherent nature of the private sector and the arguably foreseeable impact of their approach. And you, look, I have to, I have to go and ask you to dish a little bit more dirt there, Rebecca. You mentioned <laughs> some of the rich governments involved. Who are these governments who are who are pushing these reforms on the back of their own taxpayers' money? I should add. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the usual players that you might expect. So the United States, for example, has long been involved in promoting the private sector in Kenya. It's uh, funded a number of programs there. So that's U.S. taxpayer money going to support programs to expand private sector health in Kenya. The British government has also done so, the Dutch government. And, you know, it's no secret this is part of their trade policy in many instances, which is to create markets for their own companies. But I think there's also a real question of accountability there, because these entities aren't necessarily accountable to Kenyans whose rights they're actually affecting with these pro-private sector policies. Anytime we have this kind of conversations, I marvel at just how much politics and external factors affect, you know, access to the very things we need for life, right? So I just want to kind of take Nabil's hat. Nabil, I'm taking your job on this particular episode. <laughs> That's a, you, you're being the de- what the defender of the Kenyan government today, yeah? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Uh, And Rebecca, so my question is, I mean, the government is doing this, right? Rolling out pilot projects and planning to have UHC on a national scale. Doesn't that show a commitment to provide public health care services? So let's talk about UHC. I'm so glad you asked. Kenya, like other countries, has made achieving universal health coverage, or UHC, an explicit policy goal. 
It's part of the president's big four agenda. And of course, globally, UHC is a key part of Sustainable Development Goal 3. It's really interesting because Kenya actually piloted a rather progressive public health sector friendly approach to UHC in four counties. It eliminated fees at public sector facilities and invested heavily in public health services and infrastructure. Perhaps unsurprisingly, healthcare use in those counties shot up. We conducted interviews with people who had been a part of the pilot in Itziolo, and they were overwhelmingly positive about it. Not just healthcare users, but also community health volunteers and workers. People described to us how it enabled everyone to access the care they needed, regardless of their income. For the nationwide rollout, however, the government's taken a very different approach. Instead of focusing on the public health care system, the government's signature policy for achieving UHC is mandatory insurance coverage. The government sought to pass a bill that will make social insurance coverage through Kenya's National Hospital Insurance Fund, or the NHIF, mandatory with a monthly fee. And even though the NHIF is a public entity, it's super skewed towards the private sector. For example, between 2016 and 2019, 82% of the outpatient benefits the NHIF paid out were to private facilities. 82%, Rebecca, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, in essence, it moves the government from being a provider of healthcare to a purchaser of healthcare, and specifically a purchaser from the private sector. And unfortunately, it does very little to address the problems we documented in our report. So problems like exclusion, lack of alignment with public health priorities, and the really high cost to taxpayers. That's why the nationwide rollout of mandatory insurance coverage will divert more public money to the private actors and is not, we believe, anywhere near as good a plan as investing in the public health care system, which, despite its shortcomings, is best positioned to guarantee the right of all Kenyans to accessible, affordable, and quality care. Oh, wow. I think my takeaway from what you just said will be just that summary. The government will be moving from a provider of health care to a purchaser. I, there's no better way of saying it. You know, government should be providing, not purchasing healthcare. So Rebecca, it's been a wonderful interview with you. Amazing once again to have met you. And as a human rights activist, I have to, you know, say thanks and commend you guys for working with a Kenyan civil society organization. So thank you so much. And uh, let's keep meeting on the corridors of justice. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's been a tremendous pleasure. And honestly, this whole project has really been an opportunity for us to learn a lot, including from Haki Jami and from the people we spoke with. So we're really grateful to have the chance to do this work and to talk with both of you today about it. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you for all you're doing. Right, Max, there we have it. I think we've definitely made healthcare fashionable again. It's a very important issue, clearly. And let me let me tee you up this way. You've got a book a ticket to learn about universal healthcare. You've got the choice between going to Bangkok and to DC. Where are you going? I think you're clearly going to Thailand. You're clearly going to Costa Rica. And you're not listening to the World Bank on this one. I think um, it feels strange to talk about such a horrific experience of the pandemic as an opportunity. But I do think it's reasonable to think that over the next 10 years, governments around the world are going to have more license, more political space and more opportunity to invest in healthcare than perhaps they ever have before. So I think getting that right is so important. And if they go down the route of the, the World Bank of insurance schemes and, and contracting to private providers, then they're going to squander that opportunity. And that would be a disaster, I think. Absolutely. And I think totally core to this, Max, is figuring out the role of government, right? And, and getting over this 40-year headache of government and privatisation. I think 
as Rebecca said very, very clearly in her interview, we're seeing too often government as a purchaser and not a provider of healthcare. And that made very clear to me that you really just, you can't just throw money at this problem, right? You really need publicly delivered, publicly financed solutions. Yeah, I think, and if anything, a lot of money can end up being wasted if you don't do that. So it is about getting over this 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 perception, which is not just about healthcare, it's across the, the board, that government is somehow just the customer and, and the market should provide and private sector actors should be contracted and compete and recognise that no rich nation has successfully delivered universal health coverage, universal education going down that road. And, and it would be a disaster if all these developing countries tried to do that instead of investing in publicly provided free public health care for everyone. That would be the, the amazing thing that could happen. Yeah, find, find me an invisible hand that saves your life, right? Exactly. Guys, we like to end this podcast, each episode with hope. And at the end of the interview with Rob, uh, we asked him about where he finds hope, where he sees the opportunities for progress for universal healthcare. And he gave us a brilliant answer. And we wanted to end the podcast actually with that. Has put massive pressure on health systems of all types all over the world. So, so in the short term, we're all suffering you know, that we're seeing services being displaced and, you know, waiting lists increasing and, and all across the world, I think health indicators are deteriorating because of the pandemic and that, that's inevitable. But the good news is, I think because it is putting pressure on heads of government to sort this out, it clearly shows that people want access to health services as one of their top priorities. Um, it's also putting pressure on governments to provide financial protection for their their populations. And we've seen throughout history, so many of the world's great universal health systems have come out of crises. France, Japan and the UK after the Second World War, Thailand after the Asian financial crisis, Sri Lanka and China, you know, basically socialized, re-socialized their health financing systems after big uh, health emergencies. So I think history shows that this is likely. And the good news is we are seeing it already. Some countries like Cyprus have introduced universal health reforms during the pandemic. A number of wealthy countries have adopted big health reforms. Finland has. You might even say that the very tentative uh, steps made here in the UK to address social and health care together um, have come out of the crisis. This is something that's been kicked down the road for, for decades here. Admittedly, the government's not putting enough money into it, but it's a sign that those pressures really do need to be uh, heeded now. And um, I think you are seeing in countries like South Africa, uh, Pakistan, where Imran Khan has announced he's going to launch a universal health system as the beginning of the welfare state in Pakistan coming out of the crisis. He's already launching, uh, providing cards to, to, to the population. I think there's a bit of a problem that it's tending to focus primarily on hospital care again and not on primary health care. But the good thing is it's universal. It's not means tested. It's for everyone. And I think you're going to be seeing this happening in a number of countries and maybe even in the United States. You know, this has been a, a obviously a long, long battle there. Um President Biden has made a commitment to uh, extend uh, Obamacare, but I think you're seeing in some states them recognizing, some governors recognizing this could be the opportunity to launch a universal publicly financed system. 
thinking particularly California and New York, where things are at quite an advanced stage. And who knows, you, you might see it happening at a state level in the US. And then once the American population, you know, recognise that this is a great thing, you know, potentially this could get rolled out across the country. Rob, you sound incredibly optimistic and, and it feels like a few dominoes could be about to fall and the repercussions of that could be massive. Yes, I, I would say so. And, and the, the funny thing is, if you look through history, universal health reforms don't happen gradually. You can, you can see the graphs of public spending suddenly take big steps up and you, you can basically identify the year and the politician who, who launched those reforms. You know, so one thinks of the Bevan reforms of 1948 in the, in the UK, uh, taxing in Thailand in, in uh, 2001, President Park and career in 1977. And funnily enough, you can even often, you know, time it to the day. You know, we celebrate the 5th of July 1948 as the launch of the NHS. And I think it is that impact that universal health reforms have, that they are truly transformative. They can benefit an entire population overnight and provide the type of political quick win that desperate leaders need coming out of a crisis. My prediction is we're going to see this crisis catalyse reforms like this and what we're uh, very keen to do at Chatham House, but working with our partners all over the world, is to try and spot these opportunities and help catalyse them. Well, that was a great way to finish, Rob. Thank you. Um, you're always optimistic, and I love talking to you, and it makes me really enthusiastic. I just, I just feel we should kind of replicate you and put you in the president's office in 100 countries. And... Oh, you're very kind. Thanks, Rob. What an incredible interview. Yes, thanks very much, Rob. That was brilliant. Delighted. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, please keep listening, keep subscribing, and we'll talk to you next time. 